Well, let me add my welcome wherever you are today. My name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside, and I'm glad you're worshiping with us. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we can gather under your story, under your word, together as your people all throughout the world, all throughout the city, even in a virtual space like this. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us always in all places at all times. And as we begin this long study of the Gospel of Luke, we ask that as we open your word, that you would apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you would apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I first started to consider faith and explored what it means to follow Jesus, I didn't know my left from my right. I didn't know anything about church or theology or styles of worship. But when Kyle invited me to visit his church in his house on a Tuesday night, I at least knew enough to know that I might be visiting a cult. Fortunately, I wasn't. I actually found my place in a small house church in East Vancouver, and over many years we met every Tuesday and we had dinner together and we studied the Gospel of Luke and we prayed together. And it was in those early years of my faith, going through the Gospel of Luke, that I started to discover the answer to a question that Kyle would ask us every week. What would it look like for us to follow Jesus today? The Gospel of Luke, it helped me navigate how to follow Jesus in Vancouver in the social and political tensions I was facing at that time. It stirred my mind and my imagination for how to pray for God's kingdom to come even now in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And more practically, the Gospel of Luke helped me start to get my bearings with my own soul. It helped me encounter some of the disorder and find freedom and release as I began to follow Jesus and experience the power of his spirit leading me every step of the way. I discovered, as one author puts it in the Gospel of Luke, spirituality is expressed most clearly in the ordinary world eating with outcasts and the abject marginalized, giving away possessions to those who have little or none, following Jesus on the difficult road of discipleship and resisting the lure of hyper-consumerism and immoderate consumption. If you're after an authentic spirituality, you cannot read the Gospel of Luke and remain the same. We're about to begin a very long sermon series in this gospel. And there's so many weighty issues going on in the world right now. Racial injustice, political polarization, economic turmoil, two pandemics, COVID-19 and an overdose crisis, all these weighty matters. And diving into the gospel of Luke is not a way to escape these issues, but it's actually a way in which we will face these issues head on because it is through the gospel of Luke following in the footsteps of Jesus discovering the power of his spirit that we are going to cultivate a kingdom imagination that helps us turn toward the world with new and creative solutions that God can empower in our midst as we follow Jesus praying earnestly your kingdom come it's through the gospel of Luke that I believe as a church we are going to cultivate the resilience of 
hope. So as we begin our series in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to spend the next three weeks going through the first four verses of Luke. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is Luke's introduction, and it's also where he says his purpose really clear. And so let me just give you a quick lay of the land. In week 1 this week, we're going to consider the author. Who is Luke? In week 2, we're going to consider the audience. Who is Theophilus? Who is this gospel written to? And in week three, we're going to look at the genre. What is a gospel? Why is it trustworthy? And if it is trustworthy, so what? So this week, we're going to consider who is Luke. So let's open our Bibles to the gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter one, beginning in verse one and ending in verse four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So let's start by asking, who was Luke? Now, throughout history, as far as we can trace it back, and even among critical scholars today, there is consensus. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And in fact, Luke then wrote more than 25% of the whole New Testament. He is a significant author for any follower of Jesus. But who was he? Well, fortunately, he appears in other writings in the New Testament. For example, in Acts, you may have noticed, if you've ever read it, that about halfway through the book, the pronoun we starts appearing with some regularity. And that's because Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and he starts recounting his firsthand experiences and recording them for history. And so, in a sense, Luke was a missionary of sorts. Elsewhere, in one of Paul's letters, in Colossians, uh, Paul refers to Luke as a physician or a doctor. So Luke was also a doctor. He was a doctor. He was a missionary. And it's commonly agreed upon that Luke was most likely not Jewish. He was a Gentile, which was a distinctly Jewish way of referring to every other ethnic group other than Jews. And I want to dwell on this specific dimension of Luke's identity because it's actually really helpful for us to consider. So as a Gentile physician, it's unlikely that Luke was marginalized in society. As a doctor, he was probably well-esteemed and perhaps even well-off. But as someone who belongs to the early church, Luke would have known two things. First, whatever your background may have been, to associate yourself with this new movement called the Way or the Christian movement as we now call it, to associate yourself with these people was to associate yourself with people on the margins, people who were being oppressed and sometimes having homes taken away from them, losing their jobs and sometimes even their lives. So Luke knew what it was to have privilege, but he also knew what it was to be associated with those on the margins. And second, 
the early church was initially a predominantly Jewish movement. And although there was this grand vision of what it meant to include Gentiles in their midst, to bring these two ethnic groups together, the early Jewish followers of Jesus, many of them really struggled with this new reality. And so Luke, as a Gentile, Although he had privilege, now was learning what it meant to find his place among the margins and to deal with these ethnic tensions that were often on the rise. You see, today, Christianity is often portrayed in a different way. Christianity is seen as the religion of the colonizer and the Bible or the scriptures is the book of the colonizer. As the psychiatrist and political philosopher, France Fanon put it, the church in the colonies is the white people's church, the foreigner's church. And she does not call the native to God's ways, but to the ways of the white man, of the master, of the oppressor. And painfully, this captures how Christianity has often be, been co-opted by political powers and influences. It represents the atrocious things that the church has often done in the name of Christ, but actually has been living by a political agenda that is contrary to the gospel. And so as a church, all we can do is own this complex history, repent of it, listen to history as it's presented from other voices, learn from history, and seek God's vision for what it means to be a Christian here and now. And so I can understand if you pick up this book and you're new to it and you have some reluctance about reading it, if you're thinking, I'm not sure I want to learn from the book of the oppressor. I understand that. And I can understand that even if you're familiar with the scriptures, you might have some reluctance talking about the scriptures to friends or family because they view this as a book of the powerful used to oppress minorities. I can understand that. And we need to be sensitive to those issues. But I want to suggest that we actually need to put on a different set of lenses when we read the scriptures. That the scriptures are not primarily a book of the colonizer or the powerful, but that they're a different kind of book altogether. If you look at the scriptures on its terms, within its historical context, it's more nuance. You know, rarely is an author of the scriptures writing from a location of power. There might be a couple of books where that's true. But more often than not, the, author of the, the authors of the various books of Scripture are writing from the margins. They're writing from the experience of being God's people and being oppressed by a foreign power. It's the opposite of what we might expect from common presumptions. And so although the writings of the New Testament and the Old Testament can be misread and even abused, and although the scriptures have been associated with movements that the scriptures themselves undermine, the truth is that the scriptures were not written from locations of power. And so the Bible, the Bible is not exclusively the book of the colonizer or the religious right or Constantine. But given the complex history of the church, it takes some effort, it takes some diligence to listen to the scriptures, to learn its worldview, to learn its context, to consider what they meant so we can discern what they mean in complicated times such as this. And so Luke, 
as a doctor, as a Gentile, as a Christian, knew what it was to navigate this identity tension. He writes as someone who had privilege in society and as someone who associated with the marginalized. And he knew what it was to step into internal ethnic struggles within the church. And so considering who Luke was and his history, honestly, I can't think of a better guide for a time such as this, especially for a predominantly Caucasian church with privilege in Vancouver. Now, there is one more thing I want to consider about Luke and his history. And it's this, that Luke was a historian. Luke was a historian. As I said, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And it's hard to pinpoint an exact date, but it's likely these books were composed somewhere between 65 and 80 AD. And they both fall under the category of history, of things that actually occurred within time and space on this earth, and albeit with a theological aim. And we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come. But as Luke uh, introduces us to his book, there's just a couple of things I want to take note of today. The first thing Luke tells us is that there were actually many people trying to write down what had happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That many people were writing these things down and Luke was trying to read them. Luke was trying to summarize them. Luke was trying to bring them together in a cohesive, orderly story. You see, the four Gospels we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got into a room, brainstormed their different angles, and then set off to write Gospels in collaboration with one another. It's actually that Mark was most likely written first, Matthew and Luke drew upon Mark, but then there's this other material that Matthew and Luke share, and so people say that comes from another source that we call Q, and then John has all this different material, and then there's material that shows up in all of them, and so there's all these different sources. That's what Luke's talking about. He's saying, look, the Gospels are interdependent, but they're also independent, and so he tried his best during his life, to get his hands on all the different source material he could so he could give an honest, historical, albeit theological, account of Jesus's life. So this is not just scripture in the way we understand it today. This is history. Inspired history, yes. Authoritative history, yes. But history, all the same. I also want to point out that Luke mentions eyewitnesses. I already said he says we in Acts. Luke had met people who knew Jesus, who had encountered Jesus firsthand. He got to hear stories. He recorded stories. He interviewed people. He even says he did his own research. He traveled around. So when we get stories like we read about Mary, for example, recounting things about the birth of Jesus and the songs she sang, it's either that Luke knew someone who knew Mary or maybe even met Mary himself and recorded these stories. But as we read Luke's history about Jesus, here's another thing that becomes evident. Although he was not trained in this way, he was a doctor by trade, he is undoubtedly a theologian. He has significant things to say about God through his encounter with Christ, empowered by the Spirit. So a doctor, a missionary, a Gentile, a historian, and a theologian. This is the extent of what we know about Luke, and it's only a sketch. 
But with this sketch in mind, I have a question for you. If you were going to create a symbol for Luke, to represent Luke, what would the symbol be? You know, if you're going to make a logo or a brand for the gospel of Luke, what would that icon be? Now, throughout church history, there's actually been specific symbols attached to each writer of the gospel. Did you know that? I think it's pretty neat. So, for example, the gospel of Matthew is symbolized by a winged man or angel, whereas the gospel of Mark is symbolized by a winged lion, or the gospel of John is symbolized by an eagle. And each of these symbols means something about those specific writers and their theological bent. And the gospel of Luke is symbolized by an ox or a bull with wings. It's not Red Bull. There's no conflict. This was first. But what does this represent? Why is Luke's logo, the logo that we go to, an ox with wings? What does this tell us? Well, church history holds that the ox or the bull was an animal for sacrifice. And this animal was chosen for Luke because of how clearly he articulates how Christ's sacrifice on the cross was for the whole world, to reconcile the whole world. And this brings us to the next point I want to consider, is what was the main theme or purpose of Luke's gospel? And we can put it in one word, salvation. Salvation. That is what Luke always comes back to and is always trying to communicate to us. I submitted a few chapters of my doctoral dissertation recently. And in the margins, I love this one comment from my professor because I kept using the word salvation. And here's what he wrote. I hope you define this. Alas, for many in the West, salvation is simply fire insurance. And that's not what I mean when I say salvation. And that's not what Luke means, but it's not uncommon, is it, to settle for this very small view of salvation. Several years ago, I was walking down Hastings Street, which is always an interesting experience. And a little old lady was sitting quietly in this booth, but she was positioned on the sidewalk in such a way that you had to walk around her. She wanted to cause a disturbance. She wanted to make it difficult for you to pass her by. So you actually had to encounter her. And so as I tried to walk around her, she just handed me this bright neon, like wake you up if you're tired, neon card. It was green. And on one side of the card, the word was repent. Flip it over and guess what the next word was? Sinner. Repent sinner in bright neon green. And when we think of salvation, often this is the sort of image that might come to mind. This is the sort of phrase that might come to mind. Repent sinner. That it's just about getting our sins forgiven and then getting on with our lives. And that is a small view of the gospel. And in fact, I think if we define these two words, repent, sinner, on Luke's terms, we will actually see just how big the gospel is. So let's start with repent. When you hear the word repent, you might hear, feel guilty about the bad things you've done, or feel ashamed about certain parts of who you are. And yes, sometimes guilt or shame accompanies repentance because sometimes guilt and shame are just the signs of a healthy conscience. That's not where God wants to leave us, but it can be a part of repentance. But repentance in the scriptures isn't stir up remorse over the bad things you've done. It's actually an invitation, believe it or not. 
It's an invitation to change your mind, to take a new direction, to change course, to move in a new light. Repentance in the scriptures is an opportunity to align or realign ourselves with God, to align ourselves with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and thereby align ourselves with the kingdom of God. So anytime you see the word repent in scripture, you should be thinking in those terms. This is a great invitation for me to align myself with who God is, what he's doing in the world, and what he envisions for all of our flourishing. But then the other word, sinner. Repent, sinner. And again, we might just think a little too small on this. We might just think of people who do big, atrocious sins, like the worst of the worst. Or we might think of just little sins that we commit from time to time. But sinner, we just reduce it down to a couple of actions that are taboo or wrong. And of course, that's part of what it means to be a sinner. But in the ancient world, especially within ancient Judaism, sinner was much more broad than this narrow view. Sinner actually represented a very large category of people that would just be lumped in as sinners. A sinner was anyone outside of God's people. So if you drew a circle around what it meant to be God's people, a sinner was anyone that didn't fit properly within that circle. Let me give you a couple of examples. It could be that you had an ongoing illness, leprosy, for example, incurable in the ancient world. And so you were unclean, which meant you had to stay removed from society. You couldn't go into the temple. You were in actually the category of sinner, even though you had no control over your uncleanliness. It could be that you were spiritually oppressed by evil or demonic forces. It could be someone who is simply living an immoral life, as we might more frequently think of for sinners. It could be someone who just associated with the wrong people or someone who was working for the oppressor of Rome. That would put you in the category of sinner. And it could be someone that was on the outside simply because of their ethnicity, because they weren't Jews, they were Gentiles, or even worse, Samaritans. See, any of these pieces would categorically make you a sinner. And so it's this broad category of people, not a narrow category. And so if we define repent and sinner on Luke's terms, we see that salvation is actually this big invitation, this big, broad invitation to anyone, no matter what their background is, no matter what's going on in their life. It is an invitation to come to Jesus, to discover who God is, to change their mind, to realign how they think and live in the world, and to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God and seeing it manifest here and now. Repent, sinner. If that's what you hear when you hear those words, fantastic. I hope that's what the little lady meant when she handed me the neon card. Now, to be fair, I think there are better ways of inviting people into the kingdom of God than what she did. But God works through that, doesn't he? Because God is big enough to use any and everything to draw people to himself. Although there might be better ways to extend an invitation to know God's salvation than handing out neon cards with two words written on it, we have to acknowledge that 
salvation is an invitation. It's this big, beautiful invitation. But an invitation to what? If you get an invitation in the mail, it's usually to something, a wedding or an event or a celebration. In Luke's gospel, the invitation to salvation is an invitation to release. You're being released from and released into. Let me spell that out a little bit. You're released from and you're released into. So throughout Luke's gospel, we see that people, yes, will be released from sins and released into forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with others. In his gospel, we'll see that our people are going to be released from disease and the resulting social exclusion of that disease and then released into restored health and relationships. People are released from oppression and evil and released into liberation and freedom. And whenever this happens, as joyous as these moments are in the gospel and when they still happen today, they're always just signs and tastes of the kingdom to come. This is what God's kingdom is actually like. And they are signs that all of creation, all of life, one day will be released from corruption and evil and decay and suffering and tears and oppression and death and released into a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth where God reigns and is present with us, where there is joy and love and restored relationships and justice and peace like a river. Salvation is huge. It's big. It's not small. But of course, I'm just talking about what we see in Luke's gospel, aren't I? What does salvation look like for us today? What does salvation have to do with racial injustice or political polarization, economic turmoil or pandemics? Everything. Jesus, the salvation that Jesus proclaims, can release us from racial injustice. We discover in Luke's gospel that the kingdom of God is not shut to Gentiles and not even to Samaritans. You know, yes, there was this inner tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians and even more so between Jews and Gentiles more broadly. But even more intense was the hostility and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And Luke carefully notes all these times Jesus interacted with Samaritans or talked about Samaritans and showed their radical inclusion in God's people. For example, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is pretty a famous parable, is unique to Luke. And when a bunch of lepers were healed in another instance in Luke, the one leper who rejoiced appropriately, you guessed it, was a Samaritan. Luke, throughout his gospel, continues to show that under Christ, Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans and all kinds of people have to learn what it is to forgive and reconcile and be knit together as a new family representing God's kingdom and his new creation under Christ. The gospel can release us from racial injustice. Luke also shows us throughout his gospel that Jesus proclaims release from political polarization. 
You know, Luke, in his gospel, he makes reference to the emperor Augustus Octavian, who reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. And Octavian is the emperor whose slogan was this, the divine savior of the world who has brought peace to the world. This is what the emperor was saying about himself. And Luke shows us all the ways in which Jesus fundamentally challenged this political idolatry. Yes, the idolatry of a man claiming to be God when he was not, but also the idolatry of a world placing their hope in the powers of politics to bring about a utopia. And so we can be released from political polarization when we realize through Luke's gospel, and there will be many opportunities to do this, that politics will not save us. And that Jesus will show us a completely alternative way of being in the world as we step into his liberation and his gentleness and his hope for how peace can truly come. The salvation Jesus proclaims can also release us from pandemics and disease, suffering, even death. You know, the Gospel of Luke, it's full of stories of healings, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the the lame walking, all sorts of stories. And I know these can be hard to accept and wrap our heads around. And in the weeks to come, we'll dig into the challenge of miracles. But I just want to highlight that Jesus shows us that salvation can even set these things right and that we can have the assured hope of a broken and decaying creation being restored. Finally, the salvation Jesus proclaims releases us from economic turmoil too. Now, the disparity between the rich and the poor is a huge theme over and over again in Luke's gospel. Jesus, he's often found with the poor and the down and out and, and the outcast. He, he spends time with people who are deemed irrelevant to culture. And society. And there's no way wealthy and affluent people can read Luke's gospel, can consider entering the kingdom of God without being released from our comfort and entering into the discomfort of the gospel that calls us to a radical reevaluation of how we use our privilege and our wealth to bless others and support them. You see, salvation releases us from all of these realities and releases us into the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that all of these issues immediately go away. They're not easily solved. And it doesn't mean that we're never again having to wrestle with these issues if we follow with Jesus. Until Jesus returns, we're going to struggle with these realities. There will be tension, but we have the hope that he is going to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so in the meantime, we pray and we seek his kingdom. We walk in his ways and sometimes we get glimpses of his kingdom. Sometimes we get tastes. Sometimes we even see movements of his kingdom, but they're always just signs of what all of creation will be like when Christ is unveiled as the king of all creation. So yes, Jesus came to save sinners. But he also came to save the whole world, to meet us in our reality, and to release us into the kingdom of God. And right now, 
If you haven't read the Gospel of Luke, or even if you have read the Gospel of Luke, you can come to Jesus and experience this release. Jesus can release you from the things that are impeding you from being with him, being with God, walking in his kingdom, and he can release you into union with God. He can release you into a new life in the kingdom. He can release you into a new mind and heart and approach to engaging all these realities of our life. You can be released. You simply need to place your faith in Christ and ask him to move. But together we need to make a shift. We must engage the weighty issues of our world from a different place than the world. We must engage these issues from within the gospel, from within the story of Christ, empowered by the Spirit to live out God's kingdom ways here and now. You see, I fear that all too often we either loosely draw upon some images of Christ that are either incomplete or just a sliver of the whole picture. We draw upon what we kind of know about who Jesus was and then come to conclusions that this is how he would act in the world. Or we, ha we don't have any knowledge whatsoever and we engage these issues in the world and we just do what we think would be right. We think we're releasing the world, but we're actually binding the world into more bondage. You see, I think we need to truly embody the gospel to have the Holy Spirit develop a kingdom imagination in us so that when we engage serious issues in our world, we do so in a way that the Holy Spirit is empowering us to help others find release from all the things that separate them from flourishing so that they can step into a new reality that truly liberates. But as we seek to follow Jesus and engage our world at the same time, we're going to find that Jesus doesn't fit into our categories and boxes. He doesn't just affirm all our existing preferences and opinions. And just when we think Jesus has figured out, just as we think we've figured Jesus out, he surprises us. He acts in a way that we're not quite sure how to reconcile with something we've just read. And that's because he is a living God in our midst. We can't fully grasp him, but we need to press in to the tension of who he is, the complexity of who he is, but also the simplicity of the call to follow him into his reality. Danae Pierre is the executive director of the Surge Network, and she brilliantly captures this tension of what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what she says. Jesus wouldn't have fit within progressive or conservative ideology, nor did he hang out in some nuanced and abstract middle. God became, became man incarnated, turned enemies into community, reminded outcasts of their dignity, elites of their mere humanity, had compassion on the mobs and invited everyone to join his father's kingdom. If Jesus was calling 12 disciples together from our own context, he'd maybe pick a radical progressive, someone from the religious right, some wealthy intellectuals, single parents living in housing projects, some felons with tatted faces, and he'd set the table for them to fellowship. There's something in all their pain and ideas for change he would affirm, but something false he would address. 
And the whole while, it was not only his words that would instruct them, but he'd surround them with enemies, outcasts, the poor, and suffering in the world, and teach them how to reconcile with one another as he dispensed acts of mercy and justice for the least. This is what the kingdom is. The invitation of Luke is ultimately the invitation of Jesus to follow him as he releases us from the world and into his kingdom so that we can live in the world in a new way. A kingdom that doesn't fit into our own mold, but releases us into God's vision. And I hope that with this sketch of Luke and some of the major things Luke is going to address, that you can see why entering into the gospel will actually empower us to enter into the issues of our culture. And my hope is that as we journey through Luke, we might actually become like Luke ourselves. You see, Luke was a doctor and a physician, and that was his vocation. But then he encountered Jesus, and we see that his priorities changed. He remained a doctor, and that was important. But first and foremost, he became an ambassador of God, an ambassador of Christ. He sought to learn everything he could about Jesus, and he sought to communicate who Jesus was in creative ways to the world around him. And so that's my hope for us. You don't have to leave your job or your career. You don't necessarily have to become a missionary like Luke and travel around the world. But each and every single one of us can become like Luke. We can find our identity in Christ. We can become ambassadors of his kingdom. We can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to have this kingdom imagination so that the people who are intersecting with our lives, the places that are intersecting with our lives, can be released from all that tarnishes what is good in this world and released into the flourishing that only Jesus can bring. So may we grow in the knowledge of Christ. May we grow in our vision of his kingdom so that we may truly live in the world in a way that matters.